Welcome back to the Running Wine Mom podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Solinsky, aka the Running Wine Mom. Today, I have the pleasure of diving into the transformative experiences and impactful work of Nikki Silvestri, a remarkable woman who has embraced both fitness and social impact in her life. After becoming a mother, Nikki had a fitness epiphany that sparked a deep commitment to her own health and well-being. She realized that by prioritizing her fitness, she was not only setting an example for her child, but also ensuring that she could lead a long and fulfilling life as a parent. We'll hear her share the pivotal moments and challenges she faced on this fitness journey and the positive impact it has had on her relationship with her child and family dynamics. Nikki is also a social impact strategist dedicated to creating positive change in her community and beyond. We'll dive into her role, exploring how she works towards making a difference and the meaningful project she has undertaken. Furthermore, Nikki is the founder of Soil and Shadow, a purpose-driven business that specializes in branding, storytelling, and strategic consulting. We'll explore her philosophy behind the business, how she collaborates with clients to amplify their narratives, and her work with diverse organizations to promote equity, diversity, and inclusion. Get ready to be inspired as we dive into Nikki's incredible journey, her commitment to fitness and social impact, and the transformative work that she's doing through Soil and Shadow. So let's jump right in. Welcome, Nikki. Thank you. It's really good to be here. I'm so glad to have you. So to start each episode, uh, we have our wine, wine, and win of the week segment. This is where we share our favorite bottle of wine or drink that about something that has been bothering us and celebrate our recent victories. So grab a glass, take a deep breath, and let's get started. What is your wine, W-I-N-E, of the week? Ooh, my wine of the week this week. Well, I don't drink alcohol, so I would have to say it is the lemon cayenne cavita, which is a fermented beverage. It is water kefir. So is it sort of like a kombucha I've never heard, I've never had? It's, yeah, it's definitely sort of like kombucha. Kombucha uses black tea as a base and um, kefir is like fermented milk or water with a different kind of yeast in it. Um, so what is your W-H-I-N-E That I've been awake twice in the middle of the night with my children. And it is a wine because I'm tired in this moment, having been up since two in the morning. But it's also a bittersweet wine because they're two and five and they're so precious. And I'm really trying to capture the sweetness of the moments right now and not just in retrospect. So it is a both and for me. <laughs> and so is that your win of the week as well? Or do you have a different? Yeah, no, I actually think that's also my win of the week. I made a very intentional decision to try to capture the beauty and the sweetness of this time of life. And I'm actually pulling it off. So I feel really good about that. I love that. And it is so hard to um, like do that sometimes. And you just have to step back and be like, this isn't forever. <laughs> you know? um, so I always like to ask my guests, what is one struggle you have overcome to leading you to where you are now? And what is one thing that you are most proud of in your life? Ooh, a struggle that I've overcome. Well, very related to this podcast, a really big fertility challenge that my husband and I had. Um, we found out early on in our fertility journey that we couldn't have biological children. And so we used a sperm donor to conceive both of our children. And the overcoming of that and the fact that it doesn't even come up very much anymore 
which I didn't actually think was going to be a thing. Like it was so huge and looming when we were conceiving them. And I was like, oh my gosh, is he going to have all these struggles because they're not biologically related? And now we're like, we ain't got time to think about that. We got to get dinner on the table. You know, like we're not over there in our own heads spinning out about anything except the next immediate moment. Now, so are they biologically siblings with, did you use the same donor for both children? We didn't use the same donor. They are different donors for each of them, but they're biologically related. Okay. And what is one thing that you are most proud of in your life? Really different types of trauma. And we have done so much marriage counseling, parent coaching. Like it actually feels increasingly rare the more I talk to people in my life when you actually have a partner that reaches an edge and just says, I'm going to go in instead of backing away, you know, and just the protecting of emotional intimacy as the existential crisis of life continues to hit you is a choice. And I'm really most proud of that. That's awesome. And so important to you, your team, the rest of everything else is, um, you know, so affected by that. So that's wonderful that you guys are doing all the work. Um, to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is the running wine mom. So we start with fitness and I'm excited for you to talk about your fitness journey. Currently right now, what is your favorite way to stay active? Weightlifting. Yes. Um, And so how did becoming a parent motivate you to prioritize your fitness and adapt a healthier lifestyle? It was the catalyzing force. I don't believe I would have done it otherwise. I grew up in LA, that super asthmatic kid that like couldn't do anything because I always had my inhaler. So I had this story my entire life that I'm not athletic, quote unquote, and that, you know, like in LA moving hurt past a certain point, I couldn't move quickly because I'd have to use my inhaler. So I basically learned how to not push my body so that my lungs wouldn't hurt. Then I moved up to the Bay Area and into the forest and was like, oh, After a year of living here, I could hike and not have to use my inhaler. And it was like magic. It was just, oh, air quality is a real thing. And so that was kind of the first introduction to it. But then I had my kids and gained and lost 50 pounds twice. And after my second kid, my diastasis recti was intense. And for those of you who don't know that term, it's the ab separation that happens after having kids. And I was like, "Mm -mm, I ain't going out like that. And, you know, was convinced by all of the online personal trainers that one can heal diastasis recti through exercise. So I was like, great. I bought all the programs. So it started out as vanity. And then once I actually started lifting weights, it was incredible. Like just how the energy that came, like actually I discovered the benefits of exercise in a way I never had in my whole life. So now I'm one of those people. I have kettlebells. And I do Turkish get-ups and kettlebell swings. And I know how to do a snatch, a squat to snatch. Like never in a million years, Samantha, would I have thought I would be this person. Awesome. What a great, um, you know, journey. I think some people are just, like you were saying, maybe like they're living in an area with, you know, air pollution is, you know, an issue with them and, um, or they're scared to start and. Um, you know, having your why is so important. And obviously your kids are a huge why for you. Um, So what, like, what were some specific challenges that you kind of faced initially when you were starting your journey? Did you just go right into it and then you just never looked back or was there like a 
grace period of you kind of being like, eh, maybe I'll go back to my old self? There actually wasn't. And I think mostly because I, I didn't, it didn't start after my first child. It started after my second child, mm -hmm. right? She was born in 2020 in October. So we all know what was going on in 2020. That was an intense year. And so the challenge I faced with my first of prioritizing it and I'm so tired and I don't want to get up early and like all none of that was a factor. It was basically like, if I don't do something for myself, I'm not going to make it. And also I started small. I didn't start out lifting weights. You know, I started off with a, a very specific ab reconstruction online program that was very gentle and was like, you know, doing the two-step ab compressions and doing the dead bugs on the floor and like very gentle arm raises. And it was, that was really beautiful. So I think I started the routine with something that was more low bar. And then um, I got the future app. And so then when I did my interviews with the personal trainers, they started giving me more complex exercises and tracking on the watch what I was doing and being like, we think you can handle more now and maybe you should buy some weights. And I'm like, buy some weights. They were like, yeah, buy some weights. So it, it I fell into it. That's great. And I, um, I love that. Like, I don't know if you guys are planning on having any more children, but for me, absolutely not. <laughs> we knew after two, like that was done. And I feel as though you probably then therefore knew that. And it's like, okay, now you can be you again. You're done giving your body to your babies. And it's about you sort of, even though it's always about them, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> Um, how do you find balancing um, it all in your busy lifestyle and with kids? Because I feel as though a lot of people, once they also, once they have kids, they're like, I don't have time anymore. And you are the polar opposite of that. You're like, I'm making this a priority. What's your um, biggest way that you ensure to incorporate it even when you are busy? It's kind of like because I'm busy. I mean, it, it helps that I run a leadership team and organizational development firm. You know, like that's our perspective on branding is like, you got to have leadership skills and then you'll know how to tell your story. And so I can't be going off and telling people about the inverse relationship between rest and the ability to process your growth edge. Like there were all these leadership development things I knew about the cost benefit ratio of being busy and busyness as distortion and distraction. So the spotlight just got turned back on me. But I think had I not had that, I wouldn't have been able to activate it so quickly. So that like a tangible example is like, if I don't work out a few days in a row, then I actually will get done in six hours, what it would have taken me three hours to do had I actually worked out and had less brain fog because of the physiological um, reaction that happens when I lift my weights for just 30 minutes in the morning, it saves me three hours. And there's, there's data that I have about my body to support that. So that will get me up in the morning. That's amazing. And I'm a, a health and phys ed teacher as well for high school kids. And a lot of the, um, a lot of information similar to that comes out is there should be workout. A lot of schools have like workout programs before school and it kind of shows like there's higher test scores and there's higher achievement. And it's all, I believe, you know, that's what I preach is movement is truly medicine for your brain and, and, and body, obviously, but brain as well. So what do you wish that you would have learned earlier in life about your fitness and nutritional health? That's such a good question. I think I wish I would have learned about how to, that, there, that my lungs didn't have to feel that way. I think I wish I would have learned more about asthma and 
how the experience of and breathing techniques, because that's also something James Nestor's book on breath, super obsessed. And I started doing like the Buteco breathing and breath withholds when I'm exercising and only breathing through my nose. Like the interaction of breath with my workout is now a very big thing for me when it comes to my health. And had I known that back then, I think I could have started working out much earlier. So that's what it would be, is breathing techniques to actually increase health and the CO2 to oxygen ratio and all of that. And that's something with postpartum that I did a lot of breath work just to get in your diaphragm and get your mm-hmm. core kind of reactivated. I was actually just reading something um, and there was the correlation of your breath and snoring um, and how like people are using this like certain tape on your mouth tape oh i wear it it's in an x mm-hmm. and then you only breathe out your nose oh yeah yeah one of the girls was saying her husband never dreamed before and then he put this mouth tape on and now he's dreaming and i'm like oh my gosh that's wild that that is such a uh yeah my cousin uses it too and he's like it's awesome like he's like it looks weird when you're sleeping but it's important <laughs> So how long have you been using that for? Has that helped with your like breathing? Do you think it's... It oh, a hundred. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. The two biggest things that I took from that book were mouth tape mm-hmm. and um, during exercise or physical exertion, not breathing out, not breathing through your mouth at all mm-hmm. and reducing your exertion till you can get to the point where it's uncomfortable, but not intolerable to only breathe through your nose. And then build up your stamina in direct proportion to what it takes to only breathe through your nose when you're exerting yourself. And if you have to pant, scale back. And I I started doing that and now can hold my breath for, there's like this whole thing in the Buteco breathing technique about you breathe in and then on the out breath, you hold and see how long you can hold on the out breath. And 20 is good health. 40 is super optimal health. And I got, I was at like 10, so I was not okay. And now I think I'm up to 25 or or 30 or something. That's amazing. I definitely am now like, okay, after this, I got to look up all that and uh, Mm -hmm. get my breathing better. (laughs) Um, So since, you know, becoming a parent and having this fitness journey, how do you think as a mom with your children, it's impacted you as a mother? Do you think it's made you, I mean, I know you can probably keep up with them a little better than, you know. I actually totally forgot to say that. That was all that was a big impetus for me keeping it up when my personal trainers started doing weights. Um, was because my son wanted to wrestle with me, you know, and I didn't want to constantly be like, he's a very physical kid. And I wanted to actually be able to play with him. And so I had to develop my muscle strength and stamina to be able to be the kind of mom that I wanted to be. And now it's pretty amazing. I do Hulk mommy with my kids where I can carry both of them at the same time. And they think it's hysterical. I can do chasing games. He loves the fact that I lift weights and like wants to pick up my weights and be like, I'm lifting weights like mommy. And I'm like, that's what I want. My kid thinks I'm a badass. And that what an amazing like archetype for him to think of his mother as. Yeah. That's a wonderful thing that you're doing for them. That's just showing them they're going to think it's just normal part. You know, you're not exactly saying, Oh, I want to be skinny or you're like, that's right. Um, so looking back on your fitness journey since becoming a parent, what do you think you're most most proud of achieving physically and mentally? I said this to my personal trainer. I My goal initially was just my diastasis recti. Mm-hmm. And then I looked at myself in the mirror in these tights 
about a year later. And I was like, is my ass higher than it used to be? Like, I was shocked, Samantha, shocked. And I went, I got on my personal trainer and I was like, is my ass higher than it used to be? She's like, yes, girl. Yes, it is because you've been doing them squats. And then I feel like my brain melted when it came to aging and just like so much of what, I mean, we all have our biases and our stuff when it comes to aging, you know? And part of mine was like, I would see women that I thought were too thin and looked frail when they were aging. And then there's most of the women in my family are overweight and it's causing them knee problems and increasing the risk with diabetes and cancer and all these things. Right. And I was just like, but I don't want to be super skinny and frail. And I feel like my most proud moment was realizing it's like, oh, it's muscle density. Like you use, you lose muscle density as you get older and muscle mass. And that's what I can work on. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be frail. I want to be strong and lean so that my strength to body mass ratio is such that I want to be super active, you know? So I think my pride is about switching my frame from like actually seeing how vitality is so much more important to me than the way that I look, but also I look better in tight. <laughs> That's also a very good outcome of working out is loving the way you look in the mirror. And I, I feel like I could be at a lower weight, but not working out. And I, I'm like, I just don't look good or whatever. That's I'm right. Like a bigger weight, but I'm working out. I'm like, I just, even when I look in the mirror, I just feel strong. Cause you know, you're like, working. that's right. That's right. Um, so let's get a little bit into parenthood. Um, you have two kids, five and two. And I want to say my daughter, my oldest was November, 2020. So I understand the, um, pandemic pregnancy. Mm-hmm. We found out we were pregnant, um, like March 7th, I think. And then it was like, boom, you know, mm -hmm. world. um, so it was kind of, there was some nice things that I took out of it, but you know, it was just like lonely. You, you weren't doing a lot of, and you know, you had a pregnancy prior, so I'm sure you had a lot to compare to. And I saw with my second, how much more I was able to do with my first, I didn't know. So I was like, I don't, it doesn't matter that I'm missing out. But then with Parker, I was like, oh. Yeah. Um, so what do you think your parenting style is? Connective. And, you know, there's the whole respectful parenting thing. And I'm a, I stand for respectful parenting. And I would say I'm a respectful parent, but it, the octave that I feel like I want to operate at is they actually are human beings that have sense. Having an a developing prefrontal cortex doesn't mean that they're dumb. That, that informs everything I do. That's wonderful. I, that's a great perspective too. Cause I feel as though I'm similar to that. It's like, you want them to respect you, but then there's all the like gentle parenting stuff where you're like, Oh, like, you know, talk to them a certain way. But like you're saying, it can be kind of both where you're, they respect you, but you're not screaming at them if they're messing up. You're just like, hey. well, and that's why I like respectful versus gentle parenting. I feel like gentle parenting gets into nice culture, some of that stuff in a way I didn't particularly relate to as a black woman. Cause I was like, you gonna let him say what? <laughs> no. And so I found my, I found my home in respectful parenting where it's like, oh no, they gotta have limits, trust. But you don't have to yell at them to set limits. You can just be like, you will be upset about this. Mm -hmm. 
and you can be upset. I will hold space for your feelings and no, you're not having ice cream for dinner. Mm-mm, it's not happening. Yes, I. Uh, that is me 100%. Just very uh, matter of fact about it. I'm like, this is what it is. And I'm sorry you feel that way sometimes. <laughs> Even though, you know, my daughter, I could do it with my daughter. She understands. My son has no idea what's happening. He's like, you know, running around, doesn't know yet. But we'll get there. Um, what do you think you're least prepared for in parenthood? The unearthing of my personal trauma. Completely unprepared for it. I can look back now and see how completely, not completely, but I can see how dissociated I was when I had my son and how emotionally withdrawn and unavailable I was. And now having gone down the Gabor Mate rabbit hole and trauma and all of that and like emotional abandonment leading to addiction and all of the things, I can see myself and locate myself in there in a way that I couldn't before. And I did not know I would need to integrate all that I integrated to be the the gap between who I was and the type of parent I wanted to be was huge. And I wish I would have known that before I was dealing with pregnancy and raising an infant, but I also wouldn't have had the imperative to do the work as hard as I did. That it's so again interesting you say that because so many women that I I've spoken to say the same thing like parenthood brings up all of this like unresolved trauma that you just like really didn't have to technically deal with prior to I mean you know you could have dealt with it but when you have these little humans that you're raising you're recognizing like what you maybe like went through or some things maybe that you loved growing up and some things that you absolutely hated growing up. And you're like, wait, I need to heal so that my kids can do better. And I just love that this generation of moms are really like working on that. And I think that's so amazing to help raise the next generation of children who are hopefully going to be able to understand that if they have to, you know, deal with it, they, if that it's okay and normal to work through any of their traumas, which And that that's actually part of the organic cycle of life. Mm -hmm. You know, what I'm really excited about is being a grandparent and talking to them before they have kids and being like, look, you're going to be when you have kids, it's a brand new. It's not just a brand new relationship. It's a brand new human. You can teach them how to bond and how to connect and how to relate. And you're going to love them so much. You're going to want it to be the most ideal bonding and connecting ever. And society will not let the ideal occur. And it's going to be grief stricken and you're going to lash out and it's going to be my fault and your dad's fault and everybody's fault because that's what it was for me and with my parents. And then at some point you'll realize that we're all in a absolute pressure cooker of a country that doesn't support parents of young kids. And society itself is traumatizing this shit. So ergo, we get to form a new crucible here together. I would love to learn all the things you're going to go through and all the remaking of yourself you're going to do as a parent. And I want to be there with you so that I can help, so that I can evolve. And I don't want you to ever be afraid to tell me what you experienced as a kid because it's intergenerational trauma. I don't shame myself for what I did when you were a child. And you will do some of the same things. And I don't want you to shame yourself because my parents did it. Their parents did it. Their parents did it. This is just, it's a, it's a thing that is kind of separate from us that we carry. And there's a way to be objective about it 
in a way that we manage it as much as we can and we break as many cycles as we can every generation, but we can be really kind to one another as we do it. That's such good advice because it is about the, you know, the generation. I've been reading a lot about like, you know, the generational trauma as well with how we've evolved based on, you know, how our parents have treated us and, you know, we want to do different in each way, but like, I can recognize that I'm going to screw my kids up somehow. Like, I don't know how it's going to be, but it's going to be something I'm not going to do right. And like you said, I would love to be there with them to go through when they become parents. Like, what did we do wrong that you can do better with them? Because nobody's perfect, um, which is important to recognize. So what is one piece of advice you would give other parents? To, to actually really understand emotional abandonment as a concept. And a part of that for me is a lot of Gabor Mate's work is on attunement versus attachment. And I think that a lot of people get attachment because attachment-based parenting has been so up for so many decades. Mm -hmm. And a lot of attachment is just proximity, physical proximity, right? Mm -hmm. But attunement is emotional proximity. And with technology being what it is, like a part of my dissociation when I had my son was I was constantly scrolling my phone when I was nursing. I was sitting so much. I was doing business courses. I was just, I wasn't there with him, even though I was physically with him. So I was like, we're co-sleeping. I'm breastfeeding. Like this dude's going to be attached and super healthy, but I was emotionally abandoning him all over the place. And I feel like the distraction The stress response of leaning into virtual worlds and imagination and drama and whatever we use to manage stress creates the capacity for emotionally abandoning our children just with distraction. Mm -hmm. And our kids need us (laughs) right now. I mean, society is losing its ever-loving mind. And in an ideal world, what I want for every parent is to understand emotional abandonment and attunement so that we don't leave our kids emotionally in ways that we don't even know are harming them. Yeah, it's it's so, and it's not really from a parent perspective, from a teacher perspective, I teach grades seven through 12, health and phys ed, and seeing, you know, going back to the phone where you're saying that, you know, you were there present with your child, but you're, you know, on the phone. I see that with the socialization of our, of this generation of students where they're all, I used to go into a classroom and I used to have to say, or like in the gym and be like, all right, everyone like quiet down. We have to get like started. And now you come in and like, nobody's really talking to each other. They're just sitting on their phones, looking at their phones and I don't know, talking to someone else, but it's not the same as like that socialization aspect that, we all need and um, that connection that everybody deserves to have too. So that's important to remember for our kids and raising them as well. (laughs) All right. So let's get into some specific interview questions. Um, I think it was in your TED talk. You talked about Captain Planet and your environmental journey. And I was like, I have to somehow put this in. So we're just going to get it out there because I want to know about it. It was something that really just like caught my attention. And I was like, let me write this down. I have to ask. Um, so tell us about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I was absolutely a planeteer because I'm a planeteer. You can be one too. 
saving our planet is the thing to do. Looting and polluting is not the way. Hear what Captain Planet has to say. Yeah, that was, I was real hardcore about it. And I feel like I have a much better, I have much better context for it now. Because I feel like it was the ozone layer when I was in elementary school. Like that was the big environmental catastrophe. And so there were all these save the earth ozone layer things happening. And I just remember being really attached to it. Like, we got to do this. And the thing that swayed me away from thinking of environmentalism as a path was I didn't see any Black environmentalists. And I was basically told that, you know, we don't, we don't really do that because we got HIV, we have gang violence, we have actual threat to our lives. Let the white people deal with the environment. And it was in college that the world started coming together for me a bit more. And I could see my path through that. So did you go into college like as with a different expectation of your of what you were going to be and then change your direction? I totally changed. I went through a lot of phases. I went to a medical magnet high school in Los Angeles. So a hospital was like one of our classes and I did the labor and delivery clinic for 40 weeks. It was and after that, I was like, absolutely not. So then I went to college and um did black studies with a concentration in theater because I wanted to teach black folklore, get a PhD in theater and teach black folklore. And then an inconvenient truth came out in 2014, 2000, 2004. And I was, I saw it and had the captain planet moment, but as an adult and was just like, Oh shit. We about to die. You know what I'm saying? And so I um, I joined the Student Sustainability Coalition and was still part of the African Student Union and was like doing them both and jumping from one world to the other and just was entranced by ecosystem management. That's amazing. And you actually had the opportunity to present at the White House, right? For the, for, um, yeah. Well, for... So one of my jobs is running a national climate organization and a big part of doing that work was policy. So we worked with the EPA. We were at the White House quite a bit, just trying to negotiate different things. Yeah. How was that um, process? Like as someone who really has no idea how like the upper government would work in that um, realm, I guess, like I'm like, yeah, let me help clean up on the you know community. But I don't I'm, I don't know the big stuff. Um, is it like, are they supportive or did you find that you're constantly like fighting for what? Yeah. Well, there was the EPA when I was working with them. Mm -hmm. And then there's the unfortunate gutted version of the EPA now, Mm -hmm. which is pretty sad. But when I was working with them, they were badass and there were a lot of really good people working there. And they always wanted to do good stuff. It was organizations like ours where they were basically like, be loud, give us all the cover we need to say the constituency, quote unquote, wants this. For folks on the Hill, for legislators on the Hill, it was always that. Like senators and House of Representatives, they just needed their constituencies to say something so that they had cover to do what they really wanted to do. And so that's what we did. 
we did national events, we did advocacy, we gave them cover, and then went and took the information to DC to try to use it to get things done. That's awesome. Did you have any big um, projects that you succeeded in getting done? Like what was your biggest program or progress? That's such a good question. Yeah. I wish I could say that we passed X bill, but that was a phase where nothing was getting through shit. But I would say one of the biggest pieces of advocacy that we did see have impacts on the ground was we did a big survey, I want to say in 20, that showed that African-Americans and Latino, Latina Americans care more about climate change and the environment than anybody else in this country. And that really, it was a national survey and we got a fair bit of press coverage about it. And it was just challenging that narrative that we don't care and that it's not our issue. And that gave a lot of cover for a lot of people to be able to say, my constituency wants this, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, that's important. Um, and you were actually named as one of Ruth's 100 most influential African-Americans um, mm-hmm. in the past. So, I mean, obviously you're doing so many amazing things for your culture and community. And what does it mean to have that platform and influence? Like how can you use that? I mean, you have such a drive for change, but having that probably gives such a step up. Like, how did that? Yeah. I think inspiring hope is where I've come to lately. When I do public speaking, I am very attuned. I mean, part of it's my theater training. You know, I decided not to go into theater, but I am so glad that I took years of improv because it really helps with public speaking. Mm-hmm. And I love attuning to audiences and feeling where they are and having that live exchange. And we're scared. People are scared. You know, you come into these rooms and they sit down and they want someone to speak into them, mm-hmm. you know? And I feel like that's one of the main things about having a platform. And I have some, there's a lot of complexity for me with virtual platforms, which is why public speaking in, in person is so important to me. Because I feel like the nervous system, I mean, all this stuff we were just talking about, right? Breath, nervous system, body, all of that. The sinking of nervous systems that occurs when you're live in person and someone on stage is speaking into you and you actually can feel the catharsis, like in theater, catharsis is the whole thing. Like you go on a journey, right? And I try to do that in my speeches. And so that, considering the way the world is, having someone tell a story of a mental model and a mindset that you can have for how to have hope and how to walk through your days and can hold on to your peace um, with the complexity of grief and loss and the need to integrate all the things feels essential right now. I agree. And that's, I feel as though like during the COVID time when everything was, you know, virtual, um, everyone was like, this is great. We're going to be able to do all this stuff virtually. And then it's like, no, we miss that social connect. It's not the same as being present with other people. And it is, it's the energy that you um, are missing for sure. Um, So let's talk about Soil and Shadow. This is your business. This is, I I loved reading all about it. I especially loved like the meaning that you posted on your website about the the definition of soil and the definition of shadow and how that kind of intertwines with your value statement. Um, So tell us about Soil and Shadow. The idea came up because I burned out hard. All of that advocacy you were talking about, mm-hmm. that a few years of that and I was done. 
we started having those fertility issues I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast and I cracked hard and it was public and it was awful. And so I went into a hole for like two years and did a lot of coaching, did a lot of therapy. And when I came out on the other side of that, I could feel how many women in particular that were in the social impact space that were having the exact same experience that I was. And it was just expected that nonprofit executive directors were going to go through this cycle of burnout because nonprofit executive directing is an unsustainable job inherently. But I wanted to go an octave deeper than that. It wasn't just a job. It's like social impact folk are actively seeking the parts of society that people don't want to pay attention to because it's too hard and interfacing with that level of loss and grief and pain requires a lot of stamina mentally and emotionally. And so what I wanted to do was care for the people that were caring for the people in the earth. I wanted to look out for them. I wanted to reach back into the past and be who I needed when I was a nonprofit executive director. And so that's where Soil and Shadow was born. And the practicality of soil is that you want to save the earth. You save soil first. It is the key. It's the keystone of the ecosystem. And I love that because then as a frame for fertility and what fertility actually means, you can extrapolate everything for how to manage human systems. And that's one of our key inciting questions is like, what can managing ecosystems for health teach us about managing human systems for health? And there's just so much. That's amazing. Yeah, it just seems just like such an amazing um, idea around it and the way to really make change. Um, and one of the things that, you know, Soil and Shadow does pride itself on is working with diversity, equity, and inclusion clients. Can you share some examples of a project where you help a client successfully navigate um, and address this, these challenges? Or um, like, what does that, what, what is the, obviously I know there's an importance behind it, but can you tell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know what you meant for sure. Um, well, I'll start by saying that the way we care for the people who are caring for the people in the earth is through leadership team and organizational development, because we're running these teams and how to have the skills to do all of the things and relate to each other is hard, right? I did all this work at the White House and on Capitol Hill and like with policy and all that. And at the end of the day, it was people did not know how to play well together in groups. Full stop. That was the problem. There was no shortage of good ideas. There was a shortage of good, of the skill set to be in group settings and have that go well over a long period of time. So diversity and inclusion is a huge part of that, is one of the main things soil teaches us is biodiversity, right? The more diverse an ecosystem is, the healthier it is. Biodiversity and ecosystem management is one of the key indicators of a healthy system. Translate that to a human system, it's the exact same thing. Diversity of a human system is one of the key indicators of health, the, but it's not just diversity, which is what people get confused about. The sustaining and maintenance of diversity is a key indicator of a healthy human system. And what's happening right now is that folks are like, oh, we need more diversity. So they hire a bunch of people, said people leave. Oh, we need more diversity. Hire a bunch of people, said people leave. Or they stay and they're grumpy and unhappy because they're not being integrated well, you know? And so, um, that's really our work is making sure that human systems can function optimally because we have shit to do. Mm-hmm. We, we out here trying to end climate destabilization. We're going to have a billion climate refugees in a minute. 
We, you know, and social and political refugees because of the incident, just so much. We're going to be dealing with so much. We already are dealing with so much. We have to be high performing and operating at the peak of our abilities. And so these skills are what's required to do that. And besides diversity and inclusion, it's stuff like giving, receiving and integrating feedback. That's our main thing that we're going to be doing for the rest of this year and next year. Because with our current clients, it's like, okay, you want to talk about microaggressions because you think this is diversity and inclusion mainly. I understand. Don't label what just happened initially as a microaggression. Say, I'd like to give you feedback about what you just said and how it made me feel. Full stop. Then you can layer on top of that social, political, economic complexity, right? But start with the human skill of feedback. Start with the human skill of listening. Start with the professional development skill of implicit bias in the workplace. You know, just like all of these things. And that's, I mean, it's like, so simple and even though it's so complex it is so simple like you just said it's just very much I mean it comes down to communication and proper communication and people can just learn from a simple hey this is how this makes me feel and the other person might just be like oh I never like thought it or maybe they did you know you just never know how the other person is until you say it and, and say how you feel which is very important to um express. So what are some, you know, obviously building this uh, inclusive culture is like so important, but also pretty complex. Um, How do you approach the process of it besides the communication um, of assessing an organization's need? Like how do you, in your, do you work with like individuals from companies or bigger companies as a whole or both? And then like, how do you? Yeah. So we do work with both. We do executive coaching for individuals, and then we have a suite of consulting packages for orgs that want to go deep with us. And then we also have a digital learning platform so that if folks just want to sign on and do their own kind of leadership development at their own pace, they can do that. And the first step is really to have folks understand the outcomes that we're looking for, which is like high candor and frequent feedback. It's psychological safety that translates into vulnerable and trusting relationships. It's, it's, it's um, having a deep purpose such that when you're in times of conflict or tension, you can go into your best self and grit as opposed to breaking things. And it's the ability to understand historical and systemic discrimination dynamics so that you can address unequal power dynamics and good resource allocation for purposes of equity. So those are the four outcomes that we go for. And that's what we assess for. So we have a whole um, survey that we do that gets into all four of those dimensions and then we go from there. Um, so this might be totally, I don't, I don't know if this would have any connection, but with your original study of black folklore, does that have anything to do with like understand? like come into the history of what you're trying to help people learn at all? Does any of that have a connection? That was just like a random thought. Wow, that's that's fascinating. Yeah. I wonder if there's any original connection there. <laughs> well, I mean, the tangible connection there is this thing about people don't know how to play well together in groups. Back then, it was expressed directly through slavery. You know, 
And there were no team leadership development consultants that could go into the masses house and be like, we think you might need to work. You know, it's like how we did that was telling stories. And so folklore to me was one of black folks first interventions as we told stories and wrapped things in mythology to try to get points across when it was one of the only ways we had to express ourselves safely. Like I said, that kind of was just coming to my mind as you're talking about how you're like analyzing companies. I'm like, I wonder if there's any sort of like random connection to your original path in college. <laughs> well, actually, one of the big projects that we're doing on the leadership development side this year is a cohort for Black mothers who are in leadership positions. We're doing a retreat series. And it's the Soil, Shadow, and Spirit retreat series. And they are all like, you know, running investment firms and foundations. And one of them was like the creative director of one of the biggest theater companies in the world. Like, they're incredible professionals. And they're also mothers and they're black. And so they have this deep nexus. And one of the things we're going to be doing there in terms of leadership development is shadow work and the integration of our blind spots. And the methodology we're going to be using for that is theater of the oppressed. And it's one of the versions of it called rainbow of desire, which gets into your inner oppressors and how your, you know, how your inner caste either supports you or doesn't support you. And I'm very excited about that. We'll get three retreats over a period of nine months where we'll get to use this theater methodology to surface issues and do leadership development work. Yeah, that's, I was going to ask, I have um, some questions about the retreat and I just thought, you know, reading about it, it seemed like such a great opportunity. And I, I do feel as though like it's so important for, um, for black women in leadership to have these specific opportunities for them because white women have lots of opportunities for them. And that's just the reality of it. You know, you create this retreat for women who are, um, so deserving of it is just an amazing platform for them. So what are some other of the main objectives besides the work that you're going to do? What do you hope that they get specifically from it at the end when they walk out? Well, the threads of where this retreat came from were pretty deep. And it started as a conversation between me and the co-director of it. Her name's Nomi Lamar, and she's an incredible artist, an incredible professional who's done some really heavy hitting stuff. And the two of us were just really feeling into how the impending destabilization of the human species is going to require us to know how to activate and deactivate community pretty quickly, whether it be refugee community or um, you know, folks moving out of a place because now it's too hot to live and they got to go somewhere else. Like We're going to be moving around a lot more and bumping up against each other a lot more. And doing that well is an imperative. And Black women modeling how to do that well, not Black women modeling how to do anything well has been a savior to many things throughout history. And so we want to have many conversations about that. And we hope that these women, because they've already decided to be models because they're leaders, will get deeply filled up and be able to transform themselves by having a very safe container within which to integrate work that they don't get to bring up with other people. Because you need to do it with a peer group and you need to do it without your kids. And you need to do it in a way that's not going to impact you professionally. And we wanted to create the circumstances for that to occur. 
And so is this, um, how many days is the retreat? Um, There's three retreats and each one is um, two and a half days. Two and a half. Okay. And then um, how many people do you have? How many women do you have? 21. That's great. That's a good, that's a good number. Uh, It's intimate enough to have such an impact. And so again, just going back to the supportiveness um, and inclusivity of the environment at the retreat, how did, like, did you have any specific details um, of the retreat that you're like, you know, this, is it more like you're going to like a convention or it's more like a, since it is 21 women, like you have not, I don't want to say spot, like more of like a. a Yeah. What's the vibe? Well, we're, we're going because it's the soil shadow and spirit retreat, it's going to be at an operating ranch. So the main ranch that I've been working with for almost 10 years that raises um, regenerative meat, regenerative, like their, their mission is to restore the agricultural soils of America. So it's a 7,000 acre ranch run by a philanthropist who's basically like, I'm going to model all the things that ranchers and farmers can't afford to do and tell them how to do it so that they keep their land. Like she's really hardcore and incredible. and they have a, they have this thing about radical hospitality. So the food is amazing. The accommodations are incredible. The barn is beautiful. They hold weddings. And the convenings that they do are mostly about restoring the agricultural soils of North America. So they convene a lot of folks in regenerative agriculture and climate change. And it's the mission. It's called the No Regrets Initiative because they will not have any regrets about doing anything to restore soil. So that's where we're going to have the retreats. And a lot of the tenor of the retreats is getting to know soil. We're going to be doing this rainbow of desire work and using our bodies to surface our work and then being able to integrate it. We're going to be walking the land and foraging and collecting things to make salts and to make um, teas and bath soaks and things like that. And we're going to be practicing hard. You know, me and the other two facilitators are going to be up with the sun and down with the sun and create a very strong practice container. Because one of the ethoses of the retreat is that there, we want to, we want to create some discernment around rest and dissociation. Mm-hmm. Because I think with many of my clients, there is a confusion about the difference between dissociation and rest. And like the actions of resting are held as more important than the outcome of resting, right? The outcome of rest should be rejuvenation and renewal, etc. But if you are dissociating and watching a bunch of TV before you fall asleep, and then you're not really rejuvenating because your body's still tense and stressed because you're not integrating nothing, and then you wake up and you're still tired and you drink a bunch of coffee, it's just like, we're kind of on this treadmill. And so, yeah, there's going to be heavy practice. It's not going to feel like spa anything. We're going to be inviting them into some discipline. And the outcome of rest will occur because it will be integrating and rejuvenating. Yeah, that really sticks with me because I have a problem with rest. Like, not that I have a problem, but I find it hard. Like, even if I have, even before this, my kids are with my husband at my in-law's house just because they're, and I was like here by myself and I'm like, I have like an hour and a half till this interview. What, what am I supposed to do? Like, and I'm just sitting there. I'm like, I don't want to clean, but like, I don't want to do anything. I'm like, let me just go out and take a walk. And that was like, even though like I'm technically not resting, it was, it was good. I feel, felt so much better after. It was rejuvenating and renewing. Yeah. 
the outcomes of rest. So you have given us so much information. Um, I love speaking to you. This was such a great interview. Um, looking ahead, Me too. What, are, what are some future goals and aspirations you have for Soil and Shadow? Um, and how do you envision continuing to make positive impact through your work? Well, we're really, really excited about both the feedback training and the learning platform. We've just done so much over the last nine years that getting it into a digital arena so that people could interact with each other and interact with the content felt really important to us. And we're building a bespoke website that's going to take people through learning journeys and they can do assessments and they can talk to each other and take courses and get master classes. And so we're very, very excited about that. But then the feedback training is my baby. We, we've looked at a lot of feedback trainings around the country and giving feedback is usually the focus. Sometimes there's some stuff about receiving feedback, but integrating feedback is almost never talked about. And it's one of the stickiest places when it comes to equity and inclusion, because people can look like they're receiving feedback all they want to, but they're not integrating it, which means nothing changes. And that is how the status quo is upheld. So we're scaling our training both virtually and in person. And we're just super, I'm super jazzed about it because I feel like it's a foundational skill for like everything. Personally, professionally, the ability to do feedback well is awesome. I agree. That's, oh, I can't wait to see how it evolves even more. Um, well, thank you. That's going to bring us to the end of today's episode. Um, I hope everyone else found Nikki's journey as um, insightful and inspiring as I did. If you'd like to learn more about Nikki and her work, I'll link her um Instagram. It's at Nikki underscore Silvestri uh, or head over to soilandshadow.com. You'll find information about herself, her fitness, her impactful retreat she runs and her incredible work that she does through Soil and Shadow. Remember, it's never too late to prioritize your health, make a positive impact or pursue your passion. Uh, let Nikki's story serve as a reminder that with dedication, resilience and supportive community, we can create meaningful change in our own lives and in the world around us. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the Running Wine Mom podcast and leave a review. You can also follow me on Instagram at the Running Wine Mom underscore. And don't forget to share this episode with those who could benefit from the incredible resources of Soil and Shadow. Thank you so much again, Nikki. I appreciate you pushing through, uh, even though you know you're not in feeling great. I really do appreciate it so much. Um, thank you for coming. On. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Samantha. This was wonderful. Thank you. Remember, you're strong, you're capable, and you're amazing. Until next time, keep running, keep sipping, and keep embracing the journey of motherhood. Cheers, and I will be back next Tuesday.